from St. Petersburg and Brooklyn. This is She's in Russia. I'm Lily. And I'm Smith. Today's episode is about our trip down to the Bryansk Forest to visit a woman named Laura Williams, who, among many, many other things, loved horses and worked as an equine assisted learning facilitator. She helped a lot of people through a lot of different kinds of physical and mental emotional trauma through spending time with horses. So in a very shocking and unexpected twist of fate, Laura died today, October 28th, in a riding accident during a training session. And we just learned about this horrible news a few hours ago, and we're still kind of processing it, trying to wrap our heads around it. Um, I'm sorry, my voice is shaky. So we just spent a few days with this really energetic, open person who welcomed us into her home last month. And it might sound cheesy, but um, whenever, I mean, there's not, it's hard to find words and words sound empty. But for me personally, I felt like what the things that I learned about Laura and her life, some of the choices that she made struck me as very bold and brave. And I really enjoy thinking about and finding these little parallel moments in our lives because I'm also a young Americanka. I didn't mention that. She's American who moved to Russia and chose to stay in Russia. Though mostly when I compare our lives, I see how different our choices were. So Smith and I recorded a bunch of audio with Laura and her horses and her forest friends while we were there. And Smith has been going, spending time going through all of this audio since then to put together this episode. It's completely by chance that we happen to be recording this episode on the day of Laura's passing. But given that is the case, we would like to dedicate this episode to Laura and to her work. And just to say that our thoughts are with Laura's family, with her husband and two sons, and all of the many, many loved ones who are experiencing the pain of her passing right now. Yeah. Um, we're, we're also keeping this story in present tense, like Laura's life in present tense. I think because for both of us, at least for me, it seems like too soon and too sudden to make the switch to past tense. Yeah. So we arrive in Bryansk early Friday morning and the person Laura has sent to pick us up, Sasha, meets us on the platform. Uh, we've taken an overnight train from Moscow and because they were cheap, we've gotten coupe tickets. Usually the cheapest tickets are in the plots cart, uh, where along one side of the train are essentially bunk beds running parallel to the wall, and along the other side are small alcoves with two bunk beds perpendicular to the wall and a table for tea and food and other snacks. And the the plots cart is tight and smells like people, and you have to make your bed with the provided starched sheets. And the, the coupe is basically one of these alcoves with four beds, but with a door and your bed is made for you and everything is not so cramped. And on certain trains, you get breakfast and slippers and a toothbrush. Um, you're still with strangers, though, unless I guess you have a party of four. We share our coupe with two men, uh, maybe just friends, though they acted more like brothers and look a lot alike. Both are 
in their early 40s and meaty and from Bryansk. And they stepped out of the coupe a lot so that we could change, though we never did. Yeah, these guys are like Tweedledee and Tweedledum, just two regular pals, kind of the type of people I imagine Chekhov would base a short story on. He'd take an overnight train and then just word for word write down the exact dialogue of his random travel companions. And then everyone, and then like publish it in a short story and everyone would be like, oh, wow, he writes like the voice of the people. How does he do that? How does he manage to portray it so accurately? In the morning, in the train car, the neighbor under my bunk, because Smith and I were both on top bunks, wakes me up with the sound of him blowing his nose, very horn-like and repeatedly. Do you have to blow your nose so loud? His friend asks him. "Uh, As a matter of fact, I do. He retorts in that tone of voice you use with a person you're used to squabbling with. Can't stay clogged up now, can I? The night before, right before the two guys said goodnight to each other and to us, Smith's bunkmate said, if I snore, just yell at me and I'll stop. I said, okay. My bunkmate said, "Ah, if I snore, I snore. A little later when we'd all said goodnight, my bunkmate started snoring and Smith's bunkmate kind of pushed him a little bit, and he rolled over onto his side and stopped. See, I'm Chekhov. Bryansk is in southern Russia, near the Ukrainian border, and about 400 kilometers southwest of Moscow. We've come here for a certain American, Laura Williams, who lives in a small village in the Bryansk forest, right near the Bryansk Nature Reserve. Uh, The trees of the Bryansk forest are young, cut down and replanted throughout history. Most look young with narrow trunks, not too tall. But the forest's history, the land, is old. People lived in the forest as far back as the Neolithic era. And since the late 90s, Laura has been living a forest life there. Laura is an equine-assisted learning facilitator, or what is often, though maybe incorrectly, called a horse therapist. So just really quickly to sum that up, that's why there's equine-assisted psychotherapy, which is with a um, a psychotherapist or psychologist. And those who don't have a psychological degree are equine-assisted learning practitioners. So it's a mouthful. I mean, that's why I've just come to equine-guided life coach, you know, or um, in Russian, it's completely different. In Russian, since we're not even, you know, there's nothing close to that even in the language, um, I just call it Guide to the World of Horses. We interviewed Laura at the end of our time in the region, but we're going to play parts of that interview throughout. Yeah, maybe get into a little bit about the principles, but also if you could also just like um, weave in how you found out about it or something Mm -hmm. real quick. Yeah. Okay. So um, yeah, that's just the terminology is complicated enough when you actually try to figure out what it is and what it's about. Um, As you know, it's very experiential, right? You have to sort of be there to really understand it and to feel it. So it's really hard to explain to people what we do. Um, And the closest sort of analogy is really observing horses and the way that they are able to live in the here and now, the way that they are able to live in a herd as social creatures and interact with each other in relationship, um, the way that emotions are given outlets, they're given flow, they're not held onto inside, um, and then expressed, and then the herd goes back to grazing. So 
modeling that, um, modeling being present. And as I talked about in our session, having all your layers be as one. So being able to know what's going on in your body, what's your emotions, or what's going on outside that's maybe being projected on you and understanding, is this mine or is this something else? So being really present and aware of the information in your body and being really present and aware of your senses and what's going on around um, is what the horses teach us because they are always tuned in to the information that's coming from within and the information that's coming from without. And one of the things that they teach us is, you know, we don't need to be afraid of emotions or feelings. It's just information. It's information. And so when we get the that understanding, we can think about, well, what is that information trying to tell me? Or what is it that I'm trying to do? But if we're ignoring that information, we're ignoring those feelings, then often issues can you know, lie under the surface for an extended period of time and, and really do a disservice to us um, until we're able to express them. So that's, I think, in a, in a nutshell, what the horses model for us. And then the reason it's so, the work is so powerful, as you've experienced in these past two days, is because it really gives people a new experience. And, you know, you have some horse experience, but a lot of people have absolutely no horse experience. So sometimes for them, it's really going out of their comfort zone and, you know, trying to create a, a relationship or a language with another creature that you don't speak the languages. So it's really at a level of energy of what energy am I expressing by, you know, doing what I do. Um, and in a way, the horse is like holding up a mirror to you and saying, well, this is what you look like to me. And so having that learning and that knowledge, you might then go back into your life and be like, wow, I really do come across really heavily or hard-handed or no wonder, you know, people sort of cringe when I come. Or the other way, you might discover that um, your boundaries are really loose and really open. And so maybe there's things in your life that don't feel comfortable to you because your boundaries are too open. You know, you're being abused or you're being walked all over or, you know, your boss is getting the best of you or whatever it is in your life, sometimes we can only see that from this, you know, from another point of view when we're um, with the horses and, and again, with a good facilitator that can help us to bring that learning out. I think it's not, it's not necessarily obvious for people that this doesn't involve like coming out to a horse and then riding it because that, again, that's like the, for me at least, the default interaction with horses is I mean like love and respect and care but then you also ride horses in in my experience with horses and even when people were asking me when I was telling them about this trip to come down and see you like what are you going to be doing there I wasn't sure if I, I really wasn't sure how that the interaction would be like what we would be doing and so I think it was really like um, that was the biggest sort of thing for me was being able to interact with horses like only with my feet on the ground. <laughs> well, and, and that's for a reason, because what really interests me as um, a facilitator is the horses naturally expressing themselves. So and it's unsafe for a horse to express it himself naturally if he's got a rider on it. Because if he's uncomfortable or he doesn't like something and he bucks and kicks, you know, obviously the rider could get hurt or if he takes off. Whereas when you're working on the ground with horses, and particularly as we do with my herd, we do most of our work at Liberty. So they have the choice to, to come up and, and connect with the client or not. 
you're really getting a lot of natural feedback that, you know, if you were in the controlling or the dominant situation, which you would be traditionally um, the way horses are, are you know, um, controlled when you are riding them, you wouldn't get this really valuable natural feedback. And it does, it's not like, I mean, I've found that my horses are really growing into this role. Like since, you know, one, the ones that had, say, were traditionally, you know, used in the sort of I-it type of relationship as farm tools or as, as riding machines or breeding machines or whatever, it took them some time to open up and be able to express themselves and understand that I really wanted to hear their, their you know, their expression, their natural expression, and that they were welcome to do that. So um, it was a process of really just letting them be and letting them express themselves. And then as you saw today, they so willingly come up and step up um, and very clearly step up to do the work um, when they've been let um, make that choice. Laura, Laura told us via email that Sasha would wait for us on the platform, that he is about 40, not tall, with short hair and glasses, usually wears a green hoodie that says Bryansky less, which means Bryansk Forest. Sasha was waiting for us not in a green hoodie, but in a red polo with an English football team insignia, maybe Manchester, but... Better not to guess with these things. For the two-hour drive, I sat in the passenger seat and Lily sat in the back chatting with Sasha in Russian and translating now and again what they were saying. When they spoke Russian, sometimes I listened and sometimes I looked out the window. Sasha keeps up a running commentary. We pass a village, a silo, and he says, during the war, the Nazis rounded up everyone in this village, about 300 people, and shot them. There's a memorial there. In Suzemka, there's also a memorial. Uh, it's a town not far outside of Gransky Forest. 400 people were killed there. Everyone was killed, women, children, old people. After the war, the villages like that were empty, but people came and settled there. Relatives of the people who died and others came to the village to rebuild it and live. Some cars honk, Sasha honks. He tells us that the place they're honking at is a specific spot on the highway, a memorial commemorating military drivers in the war. He says it's the only one of its kind. The tradition is that you honk as you pass it. I note the trees, some kind of evergreen pine with peeling bark that gets lighter as you go up. I asked Lily, what kind of pine trees are these? And Lily asked Sasha, Eta sasna? Are these pine? Sasha says, da, da, sasna. They're pine, she tells me. Sasna, I say. Yeah, sasna. Sasha tells us how Russia grew out of the silos of Rus. They got bigger and bigger and eventually formed cities. But some silos stayed silos. We turn into a smaller dirt road next to a sign that says Nature Reserve Bryansky Less. It's not actually the reserve, but we're close in the so-called buffer zone that surrounds it. In the woods, there are small preserved structures from the partisans. 
The partisans in the Bryansk region were a militia who fought the Nazis both in a guerrilla war that defended Russian territory behind German lines and combated German propaganda. Sasha says to ask Laura about the partisans. She knows about the partisans, he says. We do ask Laura about the partisans, but we also ask her about the history of the forest as a whole. Could you talk a little bit about the forest itself and and maybe the history of it uh how like how also how you learn the history of it maybe is interesting to me because you've spent now a long time in it basically right near it well that's um i mean if you just look at it geographically the forest is a the giant sort of strip of of coniferous mostly pine forest stretching from the Kaluga region which is just north towards Moscow bus through the Bransk region and with its southern tip in the Ukraine so it's this giant swath of intact forest um, mostly intact um, and everything around it if you were to look at a picture from space which we used to have hanging in the visitor center you would see that everything around it especially to the south but also a little bit to the north is agricultural lands that have mostly been developed and the only reason this area hasn't been developed is because the forest is, uh, grows on a moraine which was left by a glacier, which 10,000 years ago retreated and left mass amounts of sand, which aren't very fertile. So pine trees do fine in sand. Um, and in areas that are enriched by the floodplain and by the rivers, you'll see other species like oaks um, and you know aspen and linden that are in um, alder in the floodplains. But none of that's very good for agriculture. So historically, that's what saved this forest from being you know, completely cut down for timber was the fact um, that the agricultural lands really didn't um, serve any, any use for people. The forest, on the other hand, has been a savior for so many people. I mean, if we go back to you know, hundreds of years ago, 300 years ago, this village where we live, for example, was created. And the people who lived here, they lived off of what the forest gave them. So it might have been wooden barrels that they made and then sold at market. Um, they would use like pieces of bark from trees to make um, lapti, which are like old, you know, slippers, like the woven slippers that you might have seen, um, which were what people wore as shoes. Um they would collect berries, mushrooms, um, you know, hunt fish. So essentially they lived off what the forest provided. Um, and back then it was sustainable because there weren't that many people. And, um, you know, they didn't have all the machinery and the heavy chainsaws and all those things. So it, it was all sort of very renewable. Whereas nowadays... You know, most people aren't in, engaged in those. In fact, most of the people who knew how to make barrels or to knew how to make wooden boats, they've 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 died along with the the knowledge, the craftsmanship that went with that. It's really hard to find people these days that know how to make a wagon wheel, for example. You know, um, so nowadays, you know, with agriculture and forestry becoming so uh, mechanized, obviously humans can do a lot more damage. 
So it was really urgent to create this preserve before that could happen. But of course, there are parts of the forest that aren't preserved and they are logged. And so, and you'll see when you, when you drive through the forest, you see a lot of the forests are even planted. Like there's not that many old growth trees or, or really old forests here. A lot of them have been planted like after the war or during the war because areas were logged um, and then replanted. So you'll see a lot of secondary forests here. Um, and then during the war, the forest literally became like the home and the shelter for the partisans and their families. And, um, you know, essentially the, the whole partisan movement, 60,000 partisans lived in the Bransk forest during the war. And that was their home. And they built like underground bunkers that you couldn't see from above so that, you know, the Germans couldn't, um, the Nazis couldn't bomb them or they wouldn't know where to bomb them anyway. Um, and that became their home for several years was the forest and their hide or hideaway and the villages that were left in the forest um, because they really wanted, you know, they didn't want to be taken over by the, the Germans. They um, supported the partisans. So they would give them food. They would give them shelter if they needed that. Or some of them, like the men and the boys, they became, and a lot of the women too, became partisans themselves. Um, and the, the, uh, the trail the partisan trail, in fact, if you do, if you can convince, if you leave at four o'clock, this is an aside, if you leave at four o'clock, you might actually be able to just quickly run through that little trail on the partisan trail. It's not very long, and I'm sure um, Sasha would wait. But you see a lot of stories there about the women who participated, you know, who helped, whether they were nurses or they were radio operators or they were, um, you know, fighting um, in battles. They played a huge role too. So, and without the forest, um, you know, they... They wouldn't have been able to survive. It really was became their their protector, and so um, you'll see on that trail they talk about um, how this the, the trees witnessed so much trauma and and during the war and really were the protectors um, of the people who lived here. We arrived at Laura's around 10 a.m. Besides chickens and a trampoline that Smith immediately runs to and starts showing off her flips on, I was naturally very impressed. There's a big lawn, lots of field area, a garden with flowers and vegetables, a greenhouse with tomatoes, a banya house, a main house built of orangey red brick, and an old dilapidated house that Laura and her husband lived in before they built the big house made of brick. There's also a garage above which is our room an apple tree, a pond with a small dock, some barns, a corral, and the horses for therapy. Laura meets us out on the lawn. She's exactly how you would think an American woman who owns a bunch of horses and lives in the Russian wilderness would look. She has wavy shoulder length, light reddish brown hair, freckles, brown eyes, pretty and ageless. She's wearing jeans and an open flannel over a tank top, barefoot. A horse girl through and through. I tell Smith I thought she'd be older. I was imagining a crazy horse lady in the woods. Sasha greets her and says something concerned about the cold grass and bare feet. She brushes it off matter-of-factly in flowing Russian, with only a slight little accent left, saying, it's fine, it's warm out. Later, when we ask Laura if there is something particular about the Russian relationship to horses, she answers in classic horse girl fashion. I would just take it to humans, actually, of how humans have 
um, treated horses. Because, I mean, horses have gone along, have been at our side for generations, right? I mean, before the automobile, the horses were what allowed us to expand into new territory, um, to fight wars, to build things. Um, essentially, the horses were our partners in becoming civilized. Um, and it was, you know, thanks to the horses that we started to explore other cultures or trade or start to have an economy. I mean, you know, Genghis Khan's entire clan, or what do they call them? Horde, you know, <laughs> came by horseback. So explorations of the American West, explorations of the Russian East, you know, before there were trains, planes, and automobiles, it was all horses. So I think we have this enormous debt to these animals for having carried us on, literally carried us on their backs for since the beginning of time, you know, since, since we first learned to um, interact with them and, and um, you know, have them help us. And if you look back at the times of the Russian emperors and the, you know, the, the czars, um, horses were a huge part of their lives. I mean, you don't see a statue in Moscow of some either war hero or um, czar that doesn't involve a horse mm -hmm. some way or another. And so they were um, a symbol of power, you know, and a symbol of, of um, strength and freedom and independence. So I think, um, in fact, uh, and I'm, if I get this wrong, my friend just told me this the other day, the, the word um, to manage in Russian, or in, in English, sorry, the word to manage comes from menagerie, which first came from where they kept horses oh. in French. So, uh, you know, there's a huge, there's a lot of roots. Um, that we are today, because most of us are quite distant from horses, you know, living the lifestyles that we do, that we don't acknowledge, that we don't feel. But the horses haven't forgot that. And I think even ones, even the horses that are, are like wild or semi-wild, there's some horses in the south of Russia in um, the Rostov region, which are semi-wild and they haven't had any action interaction from human with humans. Um, and some researchers have been studying them. And I asked a friend of mine who's a, who's a scientist down there, I said, you know, because I've seen pictures of them coming up and being curious about and interacting with humans. And I said, you know, these horses are wild. They don't have to come and interact with humans. Why do they? What draws them to it? It's not about the food or the scratching because they don't feed them or anything. What is it about them? And she said something that really hit me, which, you know, well, first of all, obviously horses are curious creatures, right, which I, which I know. But also because it's in their DNA to be alongside humans. I mean, we've bred a lot of these horses, a lot of the different breeds, you know, selecting characteristics and qualities that that we like, you know, like them being not, you know, not being too aggressive and, um, you know, being be able to be in connection with people or, or whatever. So it's in their DNA that they're connected to humans. So it's in our DNA too. We're tired and road-worn. We probably smell bad. But Laura understands what we need and immediately, easily transitions into a comforting mom-host mode. She says, put your things in your room. 
wash up if you want, change clothes, and come on into the house to eat. For breakfast, Laura makes us buckwheat pancakes with pine nuts, local honey, and berries picked from the forest. They're delicious, of course. In our detailed itinerary that she sent us via email, there were several meals for which we were supposed to fend for ourselves, but Laura ends up cooking and feeding us every single meal we eat while at her house. Fresh vegetables from her garden, oatmeal, mushroom stuffed pork, eggs from the chickens, spaghetti squash, whose seeds she brought from America and grew in her garden, kale too, scarce commodities in Russia. We learned about Laura from a journalist in Moscow who Lily went to the trash protests in Lubnia with back in April. The journalist asked Lily if she'd heard about the American woman who lives in the woods and is a horse therapist. Lily hadn't. She told me about this mysterious woman and we decided we had to go find her. Lily is persistently asked why she is in Russia, and despite being an understandable question, it is both decidedly boring and difficult to answer. The implication being, I guess, why is it that you decide to move away from the greatest country on earth? She gets this question from both Russians and Americans. Lily struggles to answer this question. I studied Russian, she says. I like the architecture in St. Petersburg. The old ladies don't have any cellulite, though they are big-bellied. These answers are decidedly dissatisfying, and Lily is left feeling bored and boring. Laura got lucky, though. She fell in love. What a good answer. Orlick, the one that um, Smith sat on today, was um, a stallion that was gifted to me um, on my 28th birthday by my husband, Igor. And that was the year that I first moved here to the village from Russia, from Moscow, where I was working for World Wildlife Fund. Um, and I had decided to come and try to explore the Russian countryside and work for the nature preserve here. And I think that was sort of his plot to get me to stay. I mean, what do you do? You give a, a young, you know, 28-year-old a, a wild black stallion. And then, you know, how's she going to say no to that? In 1993, two years after graduating college, Laura took a job with the World Wildlife Fund. Tasked with setting up the organization's first office in Russia, Laura worked with Russian biologists and the Ministry of Natural Resources and Environment to determine how an international organization could help fund nature conservation locally. The slightly more aware version of why did you move to Russia is, of course, why did you choose to stay in Russia? You ended up coming here at first, before you were gifted the horse. Um, <laughs> you came down here... And what was your, like, you, when did you realize that you were going to stay and, um, yeah, for me, it was just like a short term, oh, fun, let's go get immersed in, um, you know, biology in the field and living in the Russian countryside in the village, because most of the people I'd worked along with in Moscow had spent years, I mean, they were in like 40s and 50s, so they'd spent decades like out in the field and on expeditions and doing research. And, you know, they were biologists in the true sense of the word, mm -hmm. um, not like often in our liberal arts education in the U.S. You know, we know biology by a textbook and from a laboratory, but we don't have those years of field work under our belt. So I was really yearning for that. And so that really appealed to me to come and, and spend some time here. And of course, I didn't know it was a long term thing. Um, but, you know, one thing led to the other. And um, my husband, Igor, who was not my husband at the time, he was the director of the nature reserve. Um, and, you know, we just fell in love. And then sort of one thing led to the other. And I've got a black stallion and a um, soon-to-be husband and um, building a house together. So, 
Yeah, it, it, I actually wrote a book, um, which I'll give you guys a, a postcard. Oh. It's called The Stork's Nest, Life and Love in the Russian Countryside. Mm-hmm. And it's about my first year in the village um, and, you know, going through the seasons and the living and, and under, the understanding of, wow, this, this is home. During breakfast, Laura's husband and the world's foremost gift giver, Igor, briefly wanders into the kitchen. He's a wildlife photographer, tall, sinewy, handsome, and like Laura, looks healthy and younger than his age. Of course, I'm tempted to chalk their visible youth and health up to being people that have spent a couple decades eating vegetables and fruit grown in their own garden and spending time around horses, or maybe they just won some sort of genetic lottery. But I guess when I get home, I'm going to stop buying produce from the shitty ideal food basket around the corner from my apartment and cave to my roommate who keeps making me go to the co-op. It's actually because of Igor that the Bryansk Reserve exists at all. And that's always been his passion, his photography. And he grew up in this area and discovered um, the black stork here. No one before that knew that the black stork lived here, which is like the white stork, but it's black and it's smaller and it lives in very remote areas. It generally doesn't like to be near people, unlike the white stork. So it was virtually unheard of in this region, hadn't been seen. And at like 13, he happened upon a pair of storks and was amazed and and then told some of his you know, some ornithologists about it, and they hadn't even known that it lived here. So he spent the next, you know, years of his life um, crisscrossing this forest and looking for every possible stork's nest that he could find and photographing it and um, eventually lobbying for creation of a protected area to protect the the forests where the black stork lives because they nest in um, the same place year after year and they build giant nests, they need big trees to support the nest. Um, and big trees like that were becoming more and more rare with logging, with forestry, with draining the swamps, which made this area, you know, which is a flood, a floodplain um, of the Disna River, it made this area more accessible. So he understood the urgency um, that was needed to create a preserve. And in 1984, he lobbied the regional government to create a local protected area. And then in 1987, the Federal Preserve was created. After breakfast, we go to have our first session with the horses. I'm not going to tell you much about it now because we recorded the second session and we can tell you about that later. There's eight horses in Laura's herd, well, seven horses and a pony, which is technically a horse. In the afternoon, we go on an expedition through the reserve with a biologist from the reserve, a leg a man in his late 50s with capped gold teeth who's very enthusiastic about the forest. I feel like people like that are the same in every country. Field biologist types that get really excited about the change in soil type or how mice hide their acorns. They are a comforting type of person. I say this to Smith and she agrees. A guy named Pavel, one of Oleg's students, is also on our expedition. And there is our driver, Vladimir, who is a ranger. I sit in the middle seat between Pavel and Oleg. Smith sits up front, and I translate most of what Oleg is saying. The Bryansky Les Reserve is 121.9 square kilometers. We travel perpendicularly away from the river, which in ancient times was much bigger, more like a floodplain. When it receded, it left these tiers of land whose soil and fauna differ. You probably wouldn't notice this, though, if Oleg wasn't with you. 
So this, so the preserves only take up two percent of all Russian land, and but most of the forests in Russia, most of the forests belong to the government except for a tiny percent. But most of it's used industrially. Oh, so they do log most of it. I guess so. I mean, there's a lot that they don't probably because there's so there's so much land. Way more, you know, like way more than they would need. Every few minutes, Vladimir stops the car, and me, Smith, Pavel, and Oleg pile out of it. We walk a few meters into the woods, and Oleg explains, This is where the mice live. This is where the birds tuck the acorns into the bark of the tree for the winter. This is where the soil goes from clay to sandy. This is a moose track. This is deer scat. This is where people used to farm using this ancient agricultural method that continued way longer here than in other parts of the world. This is where people used to graze their cattle. Okay. Okay, so it consists of basically people in villages send their entire herd or whatever of cattle out into the woods from early spring until late fall and they don't bother them at all and then they somehow get them later and then kill them. Yeah, the owner wasn't worried about it. They were just like... We'll find them. The последнее like now, basically, till recently. Oh, okay. they followed their tracks. But if the cows are milk cow, then sometimes it comes back to be milked. But the meat ones are just and they follow the tracks. So he was like sometimes studying and would come across like cattle or something and they would think that he was the owner. And they would follow him. And they would follow him. And they follow him towards his house at, at night. And wait for him until the morning. He picks up some moss and shows us a collection of acorns. Mice, he says. That's their food, Ilyas? Yes, says Oleg. She's storing food for winter, but she's gone now, killed. But we'll leave the food in case her relatives come back. He covers the acorns back up with the moss. Oleg shows us a lot of hidden acorns, conveniently located near the road. I start to suspect he put them there beforehand. Later at dinner, when I share this suspicion with Laura and Lily, Lily is shocked, but Laura confirms that it's true. An old-fashioned Russian word for driver is chauffeur, or chauffeur. Lily later says it's not commonly used in Petersburg, but Oleg uses it exclusively, and it's unclear if he's being ironic. Laura says it's a regular word. 
This part coming up is hard for the chauffeur, Oleg says. Hard? What's hard? Vladimir says as he drives easily in the Land Rover over ill-maintained roads. It's very hard for the chauffeur, says Oleg. Vladimir stops the car and we all pile out. This time, Vladimir too. Oleg shows us a blue wooden post off the road. He says in Tsarist times, the land was divided into quadrants, and there are these posts marking the corner where quadrants meet. On each side of the post is painted the number of that side's respective quadrant. Surveying the reserve, before it was a reserve, started in Tsarist time. Every 20 years, the posts marking the corner of four quadrants are replaced to keep them fresh. Every 20 years, they change the sky. Every 20 years, <laughs> There's a tradition that this is supposed to stay on the place where it was. Okay. Mm-hmm. Basically, the inspector took away the last one because it was... Потому что крашеный. They used to leave them right near, that's the tradition. But then now they're like, oh, it's painted, you can't leave it in the last year, last 20 years, last time. The inspector took it away because he was like, last And he's like, and then he was explaining the like complicated rule. He was like, according to like article blah, 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 or whatever about the first category, you can't leave paint in the ground because it's like, because it's toxic. Yeah, the point is that you can't get the paint off them because they're like... Weatherproof, and then. He's like, there's going to be an exam, and when we. An exam, an exam at the next one, we have to know where to go. We get back in the car. This part of the road is hard for the chauffeur, Oleg says. Hard? Why hard? Vladimir says. We hit a puddle. See? It's very hard for the chauffeur, says Oleg. Halfway through the expedition, Lily tries to poison me. We've been going for a couple of hours, and we haven't slept much on the train. We've been eating berries along the way. Blueberry. Yeah. That's a blueberry. You can eat it. They said you could, so you can. Oh, you need to make a wish. He said the first time that you eat a berry in the year, you can make a wish. And if it's the first time in your life, then it will definitely come true. Oh, two wishes are here. I'm eating this. Mm. Make some wishes, Missy. Oleg or Pavel will tell us if the berries are edible. On one of our little walks in the woods, I ask, is this edible? Lily asks Oleg. 
A leg says a word, and Lily turns to me and says, yes, it's edible. I raise the berry with glee and pop it into my mouth. Pavel and Oleg start yelling, no, no, no. After that, Pavel and Oleg tell me every time we see a berry if I can eat it or not. I start side-eyeing Lily. On one of our little walks in the woods, Oleg tells us the story about wine production in the forest. Well, not wine, but I guess at the time they called all alcohol wine. Oh, okay. We get to hear the ancient story of this village. These forests belong to the Tsar. Okay, and the Tsar had a, like a factory, basically, um, that made... From the 17th to the 19th, different Tsars. Okay, so the Tsar, like the person, the Tsar, um, had a factory that did... Uh, like spirits, hard alcohol. Okay. Okay, so, so like the peasant people, workers would bring um, zirno, yeah, seeds, yeah, different, different grains, grains, okay. potatoes, and um, beets, and then a lot of um, logs to heat it there, fire. Okay. He's like, the men live separately in like Chukareo over there. And there was women who ran this and the men wouldn't drink. <laughs> and they were like the main economic fuel for the government. Wow. Wow. He's like, he's like, just the same way that now it's like you get the government gets for cash for oil at that time it was for alcohol but it's like yeah pure alcohol like vodka oh this particular okay so like the flower started to realize that those factories weren't that like efficient or something but this particular one was sold to a poet or no he rented it or something and then made money from it and wrote a bunch of poetry Что-то случилось с это такое степное, степное животное, то есть он в лугах, в степях. We stopped for a snack of cookies, salami, cheese, bread, and mint tea Laura gave us a thermos of, steeped from mint freshly picked from her garden. By this point, Lily and I have reached hysteria from lack of sleep. Lily's been translating nonstop for hours. She shows me a picture of deer poop she took at Oleg's insistence earlier on her phone, and we both lose it. Lily goes to the bathroom to cool down, and I sit with the fellas and eat my cookie. We see some bison, and everyone else in the car sees a moose, but I miss it because Lily made a joke and I was laughing with my head back. We get back to Laura's after dark. We have some banya time and then eat with Laura in the house and go to bed. The next day, we have our second session with the horses. This one we recorded.
In the corral, there's a bunch of objects. Plastic rings, a giant spool that maybe had rope or wire wrapped around it, a hall runner, Tibetan prayer flags, wooden paddles. For our first exercise, Laura tells us to build a representation of our lives using the objects. The gate to the corral is open and the horses are gathered around curiously. You've created an object or a projection of your life here. So let me know what uh, objects you've selected and why. And how is this a representation of you? Yeah, I just was trying to be intuitive. So I just like looked at the collection and the carpet. It was like in that blurred sort of um, that intuitive type of vision when the, you're looking at something and then it, one thing stands out and that was the carpet. And I, I laid it out at first straight. Hi, Marco. Margot is a Percheron, a French draft horse. She's giant and glossy black. Throughout the session, she's insistent on participating, standing in the middle of our group of three at all times, stepping on some of the objects, knocking them over slowly. And when I put it out, I realized it looked too sort of direct, like a boat or something, or like a red carpet. And I was like, this can't be right. So I curved the carpet a little bit um, so that it wasn't so rigidly straight. Lily explains her choices for each object. Mostly she chooses things for their aesthetic quality. Margot begins to destroy the arrangement. <laughs> this is more representing my life. Everything I plan is being destroyed. So what the, the fact that the horses now are coming in and adding their own piece to it, right? They're, they're destroying things, they're knocking things over, they're playing with things. Even your nice straight um, rug that you've played out is now becoming a, a toy for <laughs> for fable. Um, and, and Daisy also, when she came in, the first thing she did was she stepped on this, the beginning of the of this. What is this in your life? What is this um, rug? It's a good question. I mean, I'm going to pause here for a moment because I think it's important for me to explain something about mine and Lily's personalities. Though Lily can't help running her mouth about how she feels, and I am at times very sensitive, neither of us is particularly sentimental. Neither of us has ever been to therapy, except one time my mom made me go to a child shrink when I was in first grade, I think because I was shy. And for a short period of time, Lily was forced to see the school therapist in high school because she was hanging out with some bad influence kids who bought beer and then got caught by the police. But we don't talk about mindfulness or inner truth. Neither of us meditates, and I don't think either of us would ever describe an experience as powerful. This is all to say that we are probably not ideal candidates for equine-assisted learning. However, we both made a genuine effort to be open. When Laura asked us that first breakfast what we wanted to get out of it, Lily, ever the capitalist, said she wanted to really try to buy into the experience. And I agreed. So when Laura asks how Lily feels about the horse disrupting the representation of her life, Lily's trying. What is this in your life? What is this um, rug? It's a good question. I mean, if it, like, I was trying not to think too much about what it is as I was doing it so yeah. I could get sort of an intuitive feeling. Mm -hmm. And if it's anything, I guess, like, well, I think one thing is about the straight line is it felt very, like, deliberate. Like, I know where the beginning is and I know where the end is. And that is something that I really shy away from, having two sort of far in advance plans or knowing exactly how something is going to progress. I don't like that. So I think if I'm interpreting my own symbolism here, 
a straight line seems too obvious or something. And I, I needed to like curve the carpet so that, like I, I wouldn't want to know exactly where it's going to end. So I almost like that they did this. Um, so you, you made the curve thinking, you know, almost like a path, right? That I don't want it to be so straight and narrow. I want yeah. it to curve. Yeah. And I want there to be something out there that's the unknown. Right. That's which is now being, you know, um, explored. Moved. Explored and moved even further yeah. out yeah. by fable. And then the Tower of Progress. Like, they just <laughs> stuck up everything like a... Phallus. Yeah. <laughs> Phallus. Your word, not mine. Yeah, but, mine. Um, <laughs> And then Margot came and just like knocked it over. She did. So what, what was the, what's the Tower of Progress in all of this? It's sort of on the side and it looks very different than the rest of the objects to me. Yeah. It does stand out. I don't, what does that represent for you? I don't know. Progress. Oh my God, what is that progress? You, just you. Maybe something that I made. Unfortunately, it has to be tall and vertical, like everything that humans make. I don't know why. So something that you might make, you're saying? Yeah. Okay. Something that I might make. Or that sticks out, that stands out, right? Yeah. Is it I mean, tall and vertical, or is it more something that's noticeable and sticks out? Maybe that's what the vertical. Maybe that's why people build things that are tall and vertical. Okay. They stick out. But yeah, like something that. Watch out, girl. She she really likes to be right in the middle. Yeah. Good girl. All right, so great. So Smith, tell us about your creation here and why you chose <laughs> which objects. I'm not mic'd, so I'll just explain to you here. I made a small packed arrangement with a wooden spool at the center representing my mother and my aunts and my cousins and siblings. This is really interesting for me to like go first and then hear Smith's because it's so different from mine. Like when you gave this assign assignment, sort of like ta like a, whatever, offer, an, an offer to represent your life, like Smith makes her family in this compact pattern and I only think of myself. I like, the, <laughs> there's only me in that picture. Like there's no other people. It's just like the thing I made, the path I'm on, some pretty thing I like. Like it's really, um, different and also I covered more space and had more chaos and like as you said it was more f about a flow rather than like a construction um and I don't know I don't I don't necessarily have like analyses for that that I could say right now but I just the difference is really striking to me I'm still thinking about it talking about your family is deceptive because it appears as if you're talking about yourself but you're not actually it's maybe more of a deflective tactic than a reflection of how much I outwardly versus inwardly orient my sense of self. Laura asks us questions about our relationship. We've been friends a long time, I say. It's an intense relationship, says Lily. I say that sometimes we communicate too much, or maybe we don't, which means I don't know what. Lily says she wants us to have more respect for each other's individualism, which means she wants me to stop trying to control her. She pats Margot, who is standing between us, and is so big we can't see each other, and says, like a positive distance, like Margot. I agree, and start thinking about how we can get our hands on a draft horse. After the couple's therapy session, I lay on a horse, Orlik. Orlik is the stallion that Igor gifted Laura all those years ago. Lily holds the lead rope. I close my eyes and don't think about anything. Lily had been talking about getting to lay or be on a horse all day, yarming in my ear about how excited she was. 
But Laura phrased this offering like, now both of you are going to get a helmet and one of you is going to get on the horse. And in the moment, Lily handed me the riding helmet. Laura was surprised. I missed that moment, obviously, because I was like, oh, you're getting on the horse. So how did that come about? And, um, you know, was it, was it different than you might normally do things? Or what, what surprised you about that whole interaction? I mean, it was different than what we would normally do, but it didn't particularly, particularly surprise me that we would do it a different way. Oh, whoa, what was that? Or her tail just hit me. Oh. I just... You wanted to do the non-obvious. <laughs> Not just for the sake of doing the opposite of what's obvious, because that's sort of like, well, whatever, just for the sake of the opposite. It was more just like, I... I just didn't want to be like, well, maybe it is the sake of being opposite. How do I explain this? I, I just, like, I wanted to be on the horse. I knew that, and you knew that, and we all knew that. And everyone was like, okay, so now, but you, it's because of how you phrased it. It's like you said, you said, like, you're going to decide uh, one of you is going to put the helmet on and get on the horse or something. Some, words like that like that we were going to decide so rather than saying like okay so like Lily you're going to go get on the horse and I realized like okay in this moment I know Smith also wants to go on the horse and the, the opportunity was kind of presented to like let her. In the evening Sasha drives us to Suzyemka to catch the train back to Moscow. We eat salad and soup at a dark cafe whose only other patrons are teens who are drinking Coke in the corner of another dark room where there's a stage and a disco ball that's on. They keep disappearing to the bathroom and not returning. The lone server who stays in the back room behind the bar as much as possible almost fully ignores our existence, but eventually I order and we eat. Suzemka is this small town, bigger than a village, but definitely not a city with a population of about 9,000. It has one main road that curves through the city where all the shops are, Sasha tells us as we drive through. The cafe is across from the train station. Weirdly, on two different sides of this small city are the same few chain stores, repeated. After dinner, we go to one of them, a familiar Dixie glowing in the dark, to get chocolate for the train ride. On the trip back to Moscow, we're in the Platzkart with everyone and their brother. We share our quad with two babushki. I'm overheating and fanning myself with my hand after we bustle into the train car. I'm panicking that there's no AC in this car. Take off your sweater, dear, says one of the babushki. You're just a little warmed up from walking here. You'll cool off soon. Don't be shy, says the other, as I start struggling to get my sweater over my head without my shirt coming off with it. We're all girls here. They chat amongst themselves. They both happen to be from Moldova. The older one tells us about Moldova basically with tears in her eyes about how the sun is always shining there and all her friends and smiling neighbors are there. She's on her way back. She was visiting her hometown, but she's sad here in Russia. The other one mentions some acquaintances she has in New York, in Brooklyn. She tries to remember the exact street address. She remembers it, and I repeat it to Smith, and we both nod and say, ah, okay, but we don't know where it is at all. The older lady goes to the bathroom, and the younger one tells me quietly in my ear that actually she's heading to Moscow to then fly to New York because she's found work there with a family, through her friend. 
She said she didn't want to tell the older one. She says I understand, don't I? She doesn't want to make her feel bad, so please don't tell her. I say of course I understand and that I'm happy for her. One of them gives us homemade Neapolitan cake. Maybe the Platz card isn't so bad. A very special thanks to Laura for welcoming us into her home so fully. Igor for not seeming to mind our presence in his home. Oleg, Pavel, and Vladimir for showing us the reserve, and Sasha for driving us to and fro.